Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with Dr. Kelly Starrett and his wife, Juliet. This is probably the fifth episode or so I've done with Kelly, fourth, I'm not really sure exactly. Um, but in this conversation, we tap into how you can start to change the way that you breathe for better nervous system regulation, better athleticism, better longevity, better cognitive function, things of the sort, uh, some simple practices you can start to integrate for better hip function, ankle function, and a big part of the conversation, particularly the beginning, if you want to get to some of like the biomechanical specifics, I would say you can fast forward to probably 50 minutes in or so. Uh, but the beginning portion was a lot about how our relationships and um, our internal world affects our physiology. I think you guys are going to dig this conversation. Let's get to it with Dr. Kelly Starrett and his beautiful wife, Juliet. Kelly and Juliet Starrett, thank you so much for making time to to be here again. This is the first time we get to do this with with the beautiful Juliet, so that's very exciting to me. Thank you so much for having us. It's so fun to chat you up. Yeah. Um, so let me just I've go on record. It's, we have to start by saying that I'm going to look really bad. If you've ever listened to Aaron and I talk before, mm. it's obviously like callow and superficial. Oh yeah. And now you'll actually see the brains and the brawn. Oh my God, he's saying <clears throat> that's not true. That's not fair. Mm. This fair. You're the star, baby. Oh. How Kelly? How has had a such a a strong, um, supportive feminine counterpart facilitated your physical growth as a human being? Let me count the ways. So you have no idea. You have no idea how hard I'm smiling right now. Yeah. How uh, how happy I am to hear this question, and I'll just be over here listening very very attentively. No Look, pressure, Kelly. Here's here's what I think. I think Juliet saw some raw clump of material and was like, yeah, I can work with that. Yeah. And um, look, straight up, J-Star is the greatest warrior, poet, princess, queen I could possibly. When I, I'm a lot, I think. I'm a maniac. And Juliet is, I've always said, I've told a lot of my friends this, that Juliet is a strong enough person in her center and who she is and her identity to be able to grab me by the back of the neck and say, I think you're missing something or I think you're blind here. Mm. And it took me a long time or it took me longer than it should have necessarily to even appreciate that Juliet could, was, I knew she was a t rock star. I mean, if my, I have one talent, it's like identifying talent. And I was like, oh, look at this girl. I mean, in, in Chile, in two seconds, I was like, we're going to get married. And Juliet's like, what's your name? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so what's amazing is realizing I have such a powerful partner who, you know, is secure enough to be like, go be a maniac and also secure enough to pull back on the leash and say, Hey, I think you really missed something here or we're, we're doing this the wrong way. And that, that is a incredible source of power. We have this thing called, um, ring power. Go ahead, flash it. And, uh, I'll tell you that I cannot imagine my life. None of this exists without Juliet. Just like, I don't think people understand that there, this idea of like Lona tour, that's horseshit. That's total horseshit. Mm -hmm. Juliet and I have been a partner from day one and we work together, play together, do everything together. We're really lucky this way. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'd say. I would say I would be a dead in a ditch, li probably living with my dog in the truck still mm -hmm. when you met me. Yep. I'd still be doing that. That's true. How does nervous system regulation play a part in your guys's um, relationship? 
I can say more if you, if you want me to yeah, say like, more. lay that on Give more. It, lay it out well, I'd imagine more. you guys probably get in arguments sometimes. Imagine you disagree mm-hmm. on things sometimes. Imagine someone might be a little more dysregulated than the other person sometimes. Someone might need a little support. And I, I think oftentimes in relationships, if the individuals are both in a state of general dysregulation and more in like a reactive state, it's going to be really hard to, to proceed forward into anything that's towards growth. Is that something that you guys are conscious of bringing this back to a physical conversation, but also, you know, into relationship if you're open to go in that direction? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, you know, I would say that we have focused really hard on our sort of physical care in our relationship because we think that, um, obviously that's so connected to our mental well-being and our general regulation, emotional regulation and otherwise. And so, you know, we have even in our most busy, most stressful times, we've always prioritized moving and sleep and eating well. Um, and then I think just from a sort of argument standpoint, you know, we both have a very similar sensibility in that we don't want to live in an environment that feels like we're always being terrorized. Um, and so we actually do this thing called a feelings meeting where we sit down to dinner once a week on Wednesdays. And we it, it's this wide open thing that the only rule is there's a no defensiveness rule. And so we, you know, we sit at this dinner and and because we're 150 years old, we start the dinner at like 530 and it lasts two hours. Um, and, you know, we have plenty of dinners where we don't talk about our feelings at all. You know, we just talk about our kids and life and work and whatever. Um, but if there's something on someone's mind, we actually say, we try to save it for that moment um, because we don't want to be in a lot of conflict in front of our kids. Um, you know, often we found that in the moment you could find something really upsetting and maybe be more prone to react in a negative way. But, you know, usually if you sleep on it, sit on it, process it for a couple days, um, you know, maybe you aren't quite so triggered by it. And, or if you are, you can do a better job of actually sort of explaining what about it was upsetting to you in a way that the other person actually might be able to hear. And so I think we've tried to kind of put those guardrails in of be, you know, making sure we're really taking care of our bodies so that our minds are clear and we're not, you know, falling, falling off, falling into the stress cave. You know, we manage stress by exercise and, eating well and, you know, having community and then just kind of putting in this like relationship guardrail of like, okay, this is when we really meet to have the hard conversations. Um, because we both really share this desire to like live in a simpatico household. We don't want to always be knitting and fighting at each other all the time. That's just that, that would never work for either of our personal styles. Yeah. What would you add? I would would add that Juliet and I had childhoods that were more complicated as we talked about before. And my solution to that was to dissociate and handle stress and just put a door down. I got this. I'm totally fine. Mm-hmm. And like, that's why he's a master sleeper. And <laughs> now I have these things called feelings and anxiety and it's gnarly. Yeah. But Juliet coped in a little different way. She just was like, well, I'll just get the A plus 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 and I'll just outwork you motherfuckers and I'll deal with the self soothing in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, we both know that about each other. And really this year we're coming up on being together in like another week, 23 years, but we've been married for 20 years. And, you know, at this point, I think also Julia frustrated with me and she can let it roll off her back because it isn't a thing. And if there really is a thing we've upset or been in, in like inconsiderate, then, you know, again, I can see now I can, you know, 
with the help of some therapy and talking about my feelings and getting in touch that, you know, oftentimes I've missed something critical to Juliet. So in terms of, you know, we're really simpatico as Juliet said, and we actually are pretty stoked people. And this is how we are all the time. So sometimes there's a lot more stress and sometimes a little bit more stress, but we have figured out that if the bigger the engine is going and the faster the engine's going, the bigger the brakes we need. And those brakes are like sauna, exercise, getting to bed early, being physically connected, you know, just making sure that, you know, the only thing that matters is in my life to have a great life is that Juliet is sorted, not my kids, not my friends, not my business, Juliet. Mm-hmm. And when that focus for me really made it easier for me to take care of what matters most. And I think a lot of times when people work together, one of the things that happens, you're like, we're good, good, good. And let's, let's, I'll turn my back to the thing that is my, my root and I'll go work on these other things because I think I have bases covered and that's a mistake. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I, I have a, a, a suspicion that the future in healthcare and PT and just general physicality um, will veer more into, I think it already is, but it's going to veer more into a direction of the, the psychosomatic, psycho-emotional relationship to, to store tension in the body. And I think it's such a cool opportunity to get to talk to you guys together. I think if it was just Kelly and I, I'd probably go more in the direction of like, let's talk about squats and hinges <laughs> and things of the sort. But Huge this is a cool, cabs. Yeah. Uh, but something that I, I experience is after I, I recently started really like being more intentional with weekly therapy in the last few months. And this thing called a darkness retreat where you just sit alone with yourself in a dark room for a while. They like bring you food each day. It's very odd. Um, but that really had an effect. And some of the effects that I've noticed physically is just a general sensation of like feeling just like lighter in my body and feeling like greater ease in my, my joint function and just feels like things are moving smoother. And I think a part of that is, is the opportunity to kind of decompress held stress and held tension. And I think sometimes we can conflate or confuse old stored chronic pain and tension in the body as being like merely physical. And it feels like culturally there's beginning to be an opening to like, perhaps there's more to it. And I think relationships are are foundational for all of that. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite books of all time is The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, that's um, it's good. Yeah, great book. So I couldn't agree more. I think um, I think that has to be the way because it's it's complicated. And, you know, I think we've missed that. I think our medical system has missed that. I think in the health and fitness business, I think we're starting to kind of cue into that a little bit, but it's important. You know, one of the, I was thinking last night, um, someone sent us this deck of cards which is like prompts for your family. It's like conversation starters. Right? Yeah. And my girls kind of laughed at it, you know, because there, there are some ridiculous ones, maybe <laughs> more age appropriate for younger kids. But we, Caroline, our youngest, still pulls them out once in a while, you know. And one of the things that happens is whenever we have a ch- chance, we sit down and have a dinner together. Like there's no phones, there's no TV. We're all going 100 miles an hour. Our girls, we have a senior and a freshman. They both do sports. They have, you know, George has business and a boyfriend. And there's a lot happening in our world. But we, in spite of the craziness, Julie and I cook dinner or Georgia cooks dinner. And then we all sit down and eat together. And I think more and more, one of the ways that we can feel better in our bodies and feel better in our, in our relationships is to create constraints in practices that are non-negotiable. So all we have to do is sit down and have dinner. And then 
we'll have the conversations, whether we have a, you know, a, a funny prompt or not, or, but the thing to do is to say that we sit down and have dinner. And so if one of the things that you do, for example, is go for a walk after meals, you're going to run into your neighbors and then your neighbors are going to walk with you. And you don't have to like talk about it. You don't have to set it up. You don't have to, you know, you just do the thing and the rest of it follows the thing. And I think that's really one of the ways. Juliet and I are, have a very different life than you, I think. We're very much on a similar track talking to, you know, trying to take a big bite at this health and wellness and fitness apple. But we may have less discretionary time. If I told Juliet I'm going to go sit in a dark room by myself once a week, you know, she might be like, and are you going to fold laundry in there in the dark? Yeah. So, you know, so for for people who have more or less available space to expand, it's even if you have less time like we do potentially, it's more important that you have process built into your daily. I make the girls lunch every day or I'm sorry, breakfast every day. Juliet made lunches forever until they they outgrew your lunches. And uh, it was a great moment, by the way, for me. I can control what they eat going out the door and get a micronutrient them and get a, a protein and and take that stress. And that's something that we just do. Like I get up and I make the breakfast, and the girls, you know, are sleeping later and later because they're teenagers and they're barely making it to go for you know pick up the other kids on their route, but that piece is set and we don't have to think about it, negotiate. And that part of their health and wellness has already been sorted because of the, the program that we have in. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I like the idea that the human, and I know you're already familiar with this stuff, both of you guys, but the human is more of a, a complex system in comparison to a complicated system. And we um, emerge as a product of our environmental conditions one of the chapters in your book, which I, it's, I, you know, I have a whole section of my book about this as well, because I think we both acknowledge the value of it, is create a movement-rich environment. And within that, I think it's it's like sometimes we try to maybe like push the river, you know, we're like really trying to like push things into happening. And there's also another path towards like, what if we kind of just step outside a little bit and start to examine the environment that we're habituating ourselves in? And then just be, yeah. you know, and see if perhaps that starts to influence the way that we think and the way that we communicate. You may thoughts about, about well, how the environment. I would, I let me do, let no, me say one this. thing, one thing, me, let me, go, me. <laughs> no, um, me first, me first. I think what that, your question makes me think of is our obsession with creating constrained environments in our lives. And we love that phrase. Um, we also call it peppering our environment, but we love this notion of constrained environments, which means you know, making it really hard to make bad decisions and really easy to make good decisions. Um, And when it comes to moving more, I think we're really focused on creating an environment and always trying to look around at our environment and say, okay, you know, what can we constrain that is going to make us move more, be more physical, get up and down off the ground, um, you know, just be a bit more of a human and use our joints the way they were supposed to be used, but without actually having to think about it or like force the river, as you say, like it just happens naturally because it's there as opposed to having to make a plan to go to your one hour mobility class or whatever you're doing. It's just, it's, it's just constrained into your life. So you do it. Yeah. Were you going to say that? I was going to say that in this <laughs> early biohacking phase, and I guess I feel like we're in a post-biohack world. 
yeah, you it's know, not that, a little it's bit. Not that cool of a term anymore. There's still a few nerds out there that are it's still happening. That. Yeah, but you know, we're seeing that you know there are a biohack was a an idea that you could somehow get something for nothing, right? You could you could augment or cheat your physiology with a shortcut. And I remember originally bringing this idea to Juliet, and Juliet's like, if another white man brings me a list of things to do to optimize my life as a busy working mother with small children, I'll just kill someone. <laughs> and I remember thinking, myself, I may not have been quite that aggressive. Mm, I mean, you maybe were, not. You were. <laughs> and uh, I think the point I took away from was exactly what you were both saying is that we should think differently about the problem. And we should think differently about the problem because the solutions or the results of a current experiment aren't really trending in the right direction. Mm-mm. Whether we're talking about depression or substance abuse or you know how kids are viewing themselves, the m- number of kids in therapy, back pain surgeries, ACL injuries. Diabetes. Choose something you give a shit about and say, this is where I'm going to put my flag. And then tell me, is it better, same, worse? Are we trending in the right direction? Fitness has been a trillion dollar. It's almost a trillion dollar industry. And really, I want to say that it's an experiment that a lot of us have been running on our communities for the better part of over a decade now. And what we see is that there's a vertical of people who are certainly getting very sophisticated about owning a process and physiology and, and are watching recovery sleep and, and recovery and they're drinking less and they're starting to think differently about the problem. And then we've left everyone else behind. And so if we look at all those stats, we're not going in the right direction. So on the one hand, I'd say what we've currently been doing of sort of trying to come into people's lives and say, here are the 15 things you need to do on top. That requires an immense amount of will. And I think one of the things that Juliet and I have become much more obsessed with is really thinking, looking at behavior change and behavior modification. And we can do that through environmental constraint or do that through lessening the the barriers to adherence or barriers to behavior sort of you know modulation. That means that we have to meet people where they are and understand them in their environments. And this is why so much of our book is built on the functional unit in the world, which is the family and the household. Hmm. What are some, I agree with all that. And something that is interesting is the potential association of all of like the statistical trends of where Called modern culture's health is going in the form of things that you just mentioned. Um, and then another aspect of those trends is also a trend towards loneliness, you know, That's and right. feeling like, That's right. you know, and I, I, and it's something that I experience and I have a ton of friends and I, I like know a lot of people, you know, if I go to any place that's health oriented or fitness oriented, there's a good chance, you know, 18% of the room be like, Hey, Hey, like we know each other, but that level of depth of connection and really feeling like you actually have like a, like a firm net to fall back on as opposed to these kind of like cursory superficial lots, you know, yeah. lots of names, you know, and have lots of Instagram handles, <laughs> but like who can you actually lean on? It's something that feels somewhat divorced in, in the modern culture. And I feel like we're, you know, we're reaching out for a lot of seemingly like panacea solutions, but the trends aren't changing. And, and so I, I wonder what, do you have any thoughts on that, like correlation of, of loneliness and a sensation of maybe like disconnection to meaningful community 
how that could perhaps tie back into physiological well-being? Well, I mean, I think you're right. And I think it's a giant problem and probably the root cause of a lot of the depression and mental health challenges we're having, you know, writ large as a country and community, you know, in our communities and even with kids. Um, you know, when we sort of bring it back to what we care about and how we try to stave off that loneliness, um, because even though we're married and we have kids, I, you know, I understand what you mean. I mean, I think sometimes it's hard to find people to relate to and, you know, understand what each other's lives are like and really actually talk yeah. on a deep level. And I will say, I, I feel think understood. Men, yeah, I feel understood and seen. And I think yeah. men in particular, um, not to make a gross generalization, but I think um, from what I observe anyway, um, do struggle even more with that because they don't naturally form community and community groups as easily as women do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's one of the things we actually had at the forefront of our mind. And one of the reasons why, like in our walking chapter in our book, we encourage people to go walk with people. <laughs> um, yeah. And one of the reasons we like walking so much and we're obsessed with walking is that it's the perfect thing to go do with other people. And it has this great dual benefit of connection and movement, um, which, you know, are obviously two of the most important things to us. And so I think, you know, that's how I've tried to create community in my own life is through movement practices. Like I have a group of women that I work out with three times a week and it's not a big group. It's not a public group. It's not a class. And we do work out, but we also talk about our lives and what's going on with our kids and, you know, how we're injured club. and struggled. And we, we also have a mountain bike club. And Field so state. we, um, we've tried to create these, you know, we, these, communities in, in little ways. And, and because we love to move, we've created community around movement. Um, and I don't know that that does everything to solve the loneliness problem, but certainly that's how we've tried to approach it in our own lives. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a, a thing, a term that I recently learned called male normative alexithmia. And it's, it's alexithmia from my understanding, the definition of that is a person to not be able to have, um, the ability to, uh, speak emotions. So you have all these sensations, like Kelly, you mentioned like anxiety or maybe like, maybe some type of like shutting down disassociation thing comes up, but being able to actually have the instrumentation and understand how to operate the instrumentation in order to allow that to, to come out. And then also to be able to see, be seen in that and heard from another person. I think that, that the general, you know, be strong, stay hard stoicism that's taught to young boys and then and then men as well and then applauded on muscle and fitness and you know all the different places that we see media i think it creates a somewhat of like an emotional constipation of sorts and you see that like like the the, the rate of suicide with men is very high it's higher with women women experience more depression but then they they kind of have the tools and the community and the net to be able to, to like diffuse it feels. Is it okay if I ask you about that's like your experience with that, Kelly? I know it, it diverts away mm -hmm. from some of the, the the more common topics, and we'll, we'll talk about the book. But I just think it's important. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? But before he goes, I just want to um, add one thing because I do think this is important, and, and I look forward to his answer. But you know, when you were talking, all I could think about was um, you know Kelly growing up without a dad. Yeah. Um, and without a role model. And I think, um, you know, I think there's, I think Kelly's not alone. I think there's so many men who, uh, you know, and especially it seems like more in our generation, like eighties, nineties kids, um, maybe not, it's probably the same, but you know, no dad present. So no role model for him to be sort of a connected and present male. Mm 
Mm -hmm. Um, so he's had to invent that on his own. Um, and then, and then I think, I think then the, the dual thing, you know, for him is, is exactly what you said is that the, you know, societal messages are be strong, you know, don't connect with your emotions, don't learn to speak of them. Um, so I think, I think he has, he has it coming in, coming in hot from all those angles. I haven't been lonely in 23 years. I have a, a younger sibling that I'm married to who fears being alone and being bored. And so I always, I mean, if you really never, if you feel lonely, just and I'm being facetious, but also just be in a room full of three women who are powerful, rad women all the time, you better be on your game. I'm talking about my daughters. And what I'll say is um, my mom's a psychologist. Like she was a professor of psychology. I sort of had some meta awareness, but ultimately it's about, as you're hinting at, is the thing, doing the thing Mm -hmm. and creating opportunities to relate in the thing. I think if we just, there has to be some kind of major trauma or intention that isn't as sustainable as a feature, alcoholism, going to an AA meeting, right? Going to a, you know, plant medicine retreat or doing something like that. Like those things could happen for people, but they aren't the day to day. So where in your day-to-day are you creating opportunities for that, or at least sometimes during the week? Um, One thing that's been really useful for us that we've learned from Laird and Gabby was, Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese, was bringing a sauna into our life changed our life. Yeah. Because for Juliet and I, oftentimes, you know, we're in this dimly lit sauna, it's uncomfortable, and we're just there. And we're there for 20 or 30 minutes and there's no distraction except suffering and heating and then jumping out and jumping in. One of our neighbors, it's very unusual, but a few years ago, uh, Jameson moved into our neighborhood and I have discovered I have a best friend who lives across the street who is into training, into backpacking, into, I mean, I drug into Africa. He, he is the guy and he grew up sort of in a mirror inverse of me on the East coast where he was just a wild boy. I discovered kayaking and scaring myself. He discovered hooliganism and hoodlumism. <laughs> and here we are both sort of as adult men. But you know, last night we did the hour long sauna where we just talked about business and life and kvetched about our type one wives, you know, our type A personality wives. And, and <laughs> we didn't set out to have that interaction but we set out to go be in the same place together and, and, and have permission for that to happen. And I think that's so much of what's missing is creating an opportunity through the environment for the magic to happen, for the, the kismet, for the, the painterly, for the, 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 the happening to just spontaneously occur. And, you know, we don't, we don't go in there to our sauna and ice bath thinking, you know, we're going to really get into my soul today. Right. But all we need to do is be there, start to be uncomfortable a little bit, and then lo and behold, we start chatting. And we chatted for an hour. Well, uh, and let me just put some emphasis on the point you originally made, Aaron. I mean, here's Kelly, who is a total extrovert and can talk to anyone. And, you know, like you, I'm sure has a billion and one friends and people he follows. But, I mean, we're Kelly and I are turning 50 this year. And, I mean, you know, Kelly's definitely had friends, but this new friend of his is like definitely his first kind of best friend and person that he can really connect with yeah. that he's had in our entire marriage. And meanwhile, I have Who's like 20 
that's been super close to Kelly in like a deep way, the way that you're talking about, you know, sort of missing. Yeah. Um, and, and meanwhile, I have throughout that time probably had 15 women um, who I can connect with on that level. And, you know, th those, those relationships of mine have changed over the years, but there's, you know, they've been pretty constant in terms of having like a large quantity of women that I can connect with on a, you know, a deep and emotional level. And so isn't that interesting just to sort of punctuate what you said, which is here's Kelly, um, and really and, and sort I, of, I feel like I have close male friends, Matt Vincent, Jesse Burdick, et cetera, yeah. but who live far away, like right. even Tim and the guys I just went to Japan with, Right. For a ski, like we were, everyone's very transparent, but it just doesn't, it happens once a year. And that is insufficient to, to carry sort of through that, the year. Meet that loneliness need. So I just thought you'd think that was interesting that, you know, he's. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about like feeling resourced, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of the, a lot of the, the more common concepts about, around feeling resourced is like, do you have enough calories and do you have good quality calories and did you get enough sleep? Um, you know, that friendship is a verb too. You actually have to, Yeah. one of the things, you know, it is difficult to be, run a business, have a wife, have children, and then have additional like power at the end of the day when we feel like we're sprinting to be like, oh, let me go create some, nurture some new friendships. That's yeah. actually, you have to work your ass off to go find and create those opportunities to have that. And some of it is, it's a slow happening. You know, that turns out there are three other guys on the street, a couple other guys on the street who are terrific men who are into these things like biking, we're in our bike club, or, you know, they, they like to backcountry ski. And it takes a second for those relationships to coalesce, yeah. you know? And so that's why I think it's important that you, what has worked for me is to make sure that I'm going to do a thing regularly with other humans that are in the sort of, you know, in like with the kinds of things I like to do and then let that run for a, a while. And it takes time to be vulnerable and it takes time to be, you know, to be open. And then what that happens though, you have to nurture those relationships and you have to go out and do stuff together and have this experience and take the next step of being vulnerable. What the hell is going on with your life? I see a lot of men who potentially are dysregulated. I think that's a good word. Not eating right, not exercising, not sleeping, self-soothing with bourbon, trying to cope. That sets up a really tenuous relationship for feeling good anyway. And then to actually have to go out and be vulnerable, that's never going to happen. You know, yeah. you, you, you've got to cover the basis so that you have a, a moment to be able to go out and have the opportunity to, you know, get to know someone. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I... I feel like the cornerstone of a lot of the dis-ease that's manifesting in Western culture, or maybe I guess globally, or anybody that's falling along in that trend, is a product of this um, compartmentalization of these like health, in quotes, variables. Yeah. And you just can't do it. It's too complex. Like, like, it, it, like you need to just place yourself into various different environmental conditions where the variables are stacked and you can just be in that space. As long as you're creating all this separation and you have your 16 different biohacks and then you have the supplements over here and then you have your quality time thing that you do in a vacuum someplace else or you go to a coffee shop and you sit down with somebody, it's just too much. Yeah. You know, and well, did you, are you watching physical 100? Uh -uh, no. It's this great Korean show that we're a huge fan of hmm. and they basically brought in a hundred rock star 
Korean athletes, MMA fighters, strong men, strong women, wrestlers, losers, crossfitters. crossfitters. And then they kind of put them through some like challenges. Mm. And initially they all come in and it's all bravado and your physique. And, and then the first challenge they did was they hung, spoiler alert, they hung and the big strong guys without a strategy didn't do well. <laughs> It was just like a, but the broke the ice and interesting to see people immediately have a reason to belong to each other, have yeah, a reason dude. to interact on a different way. The sort of traditional, you know, Korean, I'm powerful, look at how strong you are. I respect you. And then all of a sudden we just did this thing together. And, and that thing together for some of them was they hung on a pull-up bar for a minute. That was like, that was their thing, but they both had this shared experience. And, and some of that I think is the power of why CrossFit communities and training communities are so powerful because we go and have this shared experience and then that can be a, a, the next step. You know, we, when we travel to New York city, we're always shocked at the dog culture there and how literally everyone in New York with a dog uses the dog as a surrogate to be able to speak to other people. Here's yes. an, Oh, you have a dog. I have a dog. We're the same. We have dogs. I dog, you dog, we dog. And all of a sudden, what that does is it really permits people to have a conversation or engage with each other. And I think oftentimes, especially behind social media, behind the internet, behind Netflix, behind air-conditioned walls, we potentially don't have a rationale to go interact with another human being. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that, that's like, I mean, that, that was kind of the function of the book that I did, Align Method, as well as it was... Um, creating a more holistic lens on the concept of fitness as, you know, as opposed to it being something that you go and do, how do we start to integrate that or infuse that into who you are? You think like an athlete, you know, if you have a body and you have conversations with people, you're a freaking athlete, like, like body language is athletics. If you're able to effectively yeah. attune to another person, that's a product of your nervous system being well-regulated. If you're glitching out, you know, and you're looking away and you, you know, you're bracing someplace and your, your breath, you're not able to get a full exhalation. You're clenching all your sphincters, you know, you're all hopped up on whatever beverages you are, or, you know, some type of suppressant that you, that you're engaged with, like good luck with communication, you know? And so, and so it's That's winding, right. winding that back. And then it's like, okay, well we can do the CrossFits and do the exercise or the yoga or, you know, all the different things. But until it becomes who you are as an individual, I think you're just, you're just going to continue to be doing this like two steps forward, two steps back dance until eventually it like, it like digests. You're like, ah, oh, okay. I breathe athleticism. I think athleticism. I like with my family, with my whole, my whole world. What do you think? Do you think that's too much? Yeah. I mean, I think we could not be more aligned to use the right, the word there on that yeah. concept. I mean, I think what the, the, the main thing we're trying, hoping, praying works with this book is that we're trying to teach people how to integrate, um, and have, these, what, what we think are important health practices, just part of their lives, mm -hmm. you know, no one. And I think one of the failings we've had in the fitness business is say, okay, you know, if you want to do the things you're supposed to do, it all needs to be done formally. You have to go to a CrossFit class. You have to drive there and park and take your CrossFit class. And don't forget though, because you've got to work on your mobility and you yeah. should probably also take a yoga class. And so you need to somehow in your busy life, figure out how to add in a yoga class. And then, and then it's just this, this sort of like overwhelm that or you've people pelotoned at home and smashed yourself and that wasn't didn't meet all your needs yeah and or yeah. you didn't Someone see results or something and so so i think um you know 
in the ways in which we formalized all of these things, it's made it more and more difficult for people to figure out what to do. And so I think for the vast majority of people who care about their health, um, you know, they've decided they, they've chosen like one or two things that they can reasonably fit into their lives. Um, you know, for a lot of people that's exercise and then, you know, maybe they have a sauna or maybe they, you know, work hard on eating vegetables or something, but I mean, that's the sum total of their health practices, you know, take some supplements, ride your Peloton, right? Because that's all people think that they can reasonably manage. Um, and so, you know, I think we're on the same page as you, we're trying to help people figure out how to integrate these things into their life in a way that doesn't feel like they're doing a thing. Yeah. I think, I think we're seeing, there is a reaction to, um, I, I like, uh, Sean Pastuk said this, he said, functional fitness is often like a scarcity mindset. You're never strong enough. You're never fit enough. It's always, you need another kilo on the bar another watt, another second, another rep. You're always prepping. And there has been a reaction to that. And we see in a, in the sort of the strength and conditioning space, we're seeing a lot of people get more interested in jujitsu which is a conversation with a person as you move and flow. You see it in boxing, that sort of re relevancy, right? We're seeing that people are sort of saying, hey, this sort of incessant drive to get another watt maybe is an incomplete conversation. And then you have movement cultures like Fighting Monkey and someone like Ido Portal. You can see their reaction to this loneliness fitness right? This, this shiny object where you just deadlift more and you put your headphones on at the commercial gym and you don't make eye contact, but you film yourself and try to You can see what the reaction is to that as really not human, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I don't know where I just saw it, but it's, I think it is like an Edo portal drill where you're trying to poke someone, you're moving and mm -hmm. reacting. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, is that dance? Are we dancing? Are we fighting? Why aren't we having a communication or a conversation as part of our physical play. And, you know, Juliet and I go out and throw the Frisbee a lot. <laughs> and you have to be in tune with the person you're throwing the Frisbee with. Yeah. Watch what their language is. Where's the, where's it going? You're communicating. Hey, I dropped that. My bad. I think there is an opportunity in our health practices, you know, the things we do on a day-to-day -day basis to make it simpler and more consistent that's independent of exercise. And then in the exercising, it can't just be about, you know, you know, getting another pound or I lost my pull-ups, went down by two reps. You know, Juliet and I are huge into what we call adventure fitness, which is being fit enough to go ride our bikes or fit enough to go paddle a desert river or fit enough to go ski tour, or do some, have some adventure. So it really gives us like we're training this thing so that we can go do this experience versus the training in my garage as the autonomous practitioner forever. I think that's an incomplete practice. Can yeah. I tell you a quick story that yeah. relates to our relationship? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was I a no D1 well, rower. Mildly I was embarrassing. I was a D1 rower at Cal, but then I decided I didn't want to spend 30 hours a week rowing. So I um, quit the team and I joined the ultimate Frisbee team. So I played ultimate for a couple of years in college. And that's part of the reason why um, early on Kelly and I were like, we shared this love of throwing the Frisbee. But it's if, actually one of our if you want to, if you want to experience marital conflict in our, in our marriage, I can't help myself, but I want to throw the hammer 
at Kelly sometimes. You know what the hammer is? It's like a type of. No, I throw the hammer. You throw the forehand. You love your forehand. I love a forehand. Oh, the hammer. And I yeah, love yeah. a Flip hammer. Flip the frisbee around. Yeah, yeah you I got throw that. it like this. And, yeah. and um, for some reason, it bugs Kelly so much that he ceases our frisbee match if I ever throw the hammer at him. So, nice. um, you know, little frisbee. Maybe hammer. you weren't so shitty at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, so we'll, I'll, I'll come off. I'll come off the, the relationship thing. I know that most most times Kelly and I have a conversation. At least I like hard drive into the whole like biopsychosocial realm, and then Kelly kind of keeps me grounded, like back into back on Earth. Um, and which I I, be, I, I kind of curious. I've heard you kind of like naysay a little bit on the the whole biopsychosocial model of, of pain. Um, no, you've never heard me say that. Maybe not naysay. I just feel like I've, I've maybe maybe I maybe I misheard, but I've I've I feel like I've heard a little bit of like um, I don't know, like a slight minimization of it. But maybe maybe I never maybe I never did hear that. I think what you're if you've picked up on anything, we went through a phase, especially in physio, where we ignored physiology and we said this is all top down processing problems that your pain. Right. is all in your mind. Yeah. And we went out of our way to explain and pain explain to people instead of having real conversations about nutrition and sleep and movement and, you know, connection, connection. One of the things that we went out of our way to explain to people because we work in high performance is that your body doesn't know if you're in a stressful situation at work or you're playing in a game for the world championship. It doesn't, it doesn't recognize this stress is stress. And what we knew from working the performance side is that we couldn't have a great robust output unless we talked about sleep and downregulation and all of the physical practices that influence the physiology from the bottom up. It wasn't just having a different relationship with your pain. Do we, I, I here's an example. We had a woman at our gym who'd broken her foot healed. She's back. She's full return to play. And all of a sudden, like months later, she's on the assault bike weeping with her boot on, right? She's got her boot back on. I'm like, what happened? And she's like, you know, my dog died, you know? And I was like, Oh, is that why your foot started hurting again? She's like, no, that isn't why, <laughs> you know, of course it was, you know, that she didn't know how to put that grief and feel that in her body. And this healed injury that she had zero experience, problems with suddenly re-manifests itself. And you can't pull out any of those pieces, nor should you highlight any one of those pieces more than the other. The problem with, I think, when people are in pain and we only use pain as a diagnostic tool to understand ourselves, we want people to treat pain A as a request for change and B as just another piece of information like crappy wattage, resting heart rate. It's really just, just one of those metrics. Yeah. Instead of fetishizing and worshiping and kind of having this conversation about people who don't have health practices. And also, I think one of the things that bugged me was that we know that we can influence the local tissue physiology, and it's not just the brain. We can improve hydration. We can improve how tissues are sliding. We can reset joint function. We can change how fascias are articulating and moving and signaling. 
those are bottom-up processes and to sort of deny the effect of how much someone can make themselves feel better themselves was really a disservice to people. So if you heard, you know, there was, it was very vogue for a second to be like, manual therapy doesn't work and myofascial work is bullshit. I want to take a moment and share about something that has truly made a massive difference in my life as of recent. That is going through the diagnostic process with LifeForce. LifeForce is a health optimization company that is bringing a personalized approach to help you take control of your health. It all starts with the LifeForce Diagnostic, a comprehensive blood test that measures over 40 biomarkers that impact your mental and physical health, from your nutrient levels to hormone balance to key risk factors for disease and much more. The LifeForce Diagnostic gave me a snapshot of precisely what the heck is happening inside of my body. Then the next step, I jumped on a call with a Life Force functional medicine doctor, and she was absolutely amazing. I asked her a whole gamut of questions, and uh, I was probably a pretty annoying patient, I would say, because I just kept asking questions, and she kept having answers. She was incredibly welcoming, incredibly sweet, and just really brilliant with the information. Um, so she mapped out a very clear, concise plan uh, for me. Uh, she was working with me. I think it, I just felt very supported the whole time. Uh, some of the things that we saw there was a deficit with me was particularly DHEA uh, and then also omegas. So they got me on a couple nutraceuticals and I swear to God, um, I since starting these guys, I feel um, almost uncomfortable saying it like this because it's an ad, but it truly made a massive difference. My word recall, my energy levels, my libido um, has, has significantly shifted since starting. So I'm freaking excited and I would absolutely implore any of y'all to at least get the diagnostic done so you can get that snapshot of what's going on inside of your blood, what is going on inside of your biology so you're not guessing. You know exactly what's happening and then you can start making decisions from there. If you'd like to get 15% off, uh, you can go to mylifeforce.com. That's M-Y-L-I-F-E-F-O-R-C-E.com and then use Align code at checkout for 15% off. And that is a very meaningful 15% off as well. So I can't recommend it enough. I think you guys are going to really dig it. I think it's going to be really amazing for your own health journey. Jump over to mylifeforce.com and use the align code for 15% off. I wonder if <clears throat> some aspects of that, perhaps it's, it's like the, the language needs to be changed because by placing the brain as a concept that you know exists in a vacuum in between your your skull and then placing your skin in a separate container <laughs> i feel like the body doesn't actually yes. know what you're talking about and the skin comes from the same embryological layer of the ectoderm you know the heart is like the first thing to manifest and then the brain builds off of that like your body doesn't really understand these textbook definitions and we're painting these new stories over top of it and then we're trying to like force that definition onto our biology I think the body is just like, cool, bro, like whatever you say, but I'm, I'm actually operating on a different Juliet system. Juliet does not feel pain. She <laughs> is the most durable. No, I'm sure that if, and this is, I want everyone to hear this. There's many times where Juliet will say something like, like if I was six foot tall, I would have been a gold medalist in rowing because no one can outsuffer me. You know, like she really has said that. And two things there. One is that I don't think Juliet the suffering that she can endure even rises to a threshold where her brain is like, yeah, it's, this is a problem. If I poured it into her body, 
I would perish in a second. Like, I'm dying. I'm burning. This is terrible. Ah, Dead. (laughs) And so on the one hand, you know, we have this, this thing that how do we create a system that can tolerate suffering and, and recognize it as non-threat. And then the other hand is how do we have a system that's so sensitized? Some of that's individualized very much. And as you're saying, we all have these different sensitivities to the world around us. And you're absolutely right. The, the thing that I think I freak out on is that people's, the physios say things like, you know, you can't prevent an injury. And I'm like, who are you talking about? Are you talking like, I can show you the data that says that kids who get less sleep during finals are more likely to get injured. So let's just get over this logic hump that we can't cause or prevent your specific injury. But as a population, we absolutely can prevent injury. Mm. We absolutely can prevent pain and suffering if we do the things that our physiology requires, including having meaningful relationships. Yeah. You know, if all you need to do is go watch um, All or Nothing, you know, where the insides of uh, on Amazon where you follow Arsenal, right, or one of the big, you know, premier football teams, and you'll see that culture matters. So what is the culture of your family? What is the culture of your friendships? Mm. And you'll see that that winning culture, losing culture very much dictates and influences how people feel about their bodies and their experiences. Why should that be any different from high-level elite soccer to the national-ranked university teams we work with all the way down to our own family or how I interact with my kids? Yeah. yeah there's like the, the – I know you're familiar with this as well, but the longest longitudinal study was done in Harvard. It's called the happiness study, and they found that in that following people for their whole lives, it's still going, their descendants, et cetera. Uh, they found that the quality of their relationships was the longest lever – dictating their health outcomes and all cause mortality and all of the things. Um, there's another thing that's, there was some research done in the Albert Einstein medical school or however they call that. They found that of all the things that they tested, dance was the, the longest lever for pre- preventing cognitive decline. And it's like, what are you like? It, it seems almost like you could, a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do in these compartmentalized ways, I feel like there could be an argument of, of most of our movement practices are driving us towards better relationships. You know, like, why are you becoming a better athlete in the first place? Why are you getting more jacked? Like, why do you care about having abs? Who the hell cares? Oh, it's because you you crave validation from, you want better relationships. You want to work yourself up higher in the socioeconomic hierarchy so you get a better wife, you know, or vice versa. It's like, it really, like, relationships, I think there could, we could flip fitness on its head in a way and be like, oh, interesting. Why are we doing this in the first place? Yeah. Are you holding a supernova in your hand? I have to know. No, the ball. Yeah, I don't I know what like, this. What is I don't. Know, I don't know what this is. It's a little ball. Okay, I've got like, so many balls. I've got balls on balls on balls. Yeah, that's what I. Feel. I was like, we don't. Like, we don't stop. Here? We don't stop here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I cut off your question, but I was you like, know, you were gesturing, and I was like, what is that? In your one hand? of the things that uh, I'm working with this superstar national champion Olympic lifter, young person. And, uh, you know, one of the things I said to her was recently and something we were working on is you've chosen a really difficult way to get to know yourself. Olympic lifting is a really, really difficult way to to come to understand your body and all the processes go. And ultimately, that's what we should be doing with sport and practice is to understand ourselves. Juliet and I made, how many hires did we have at our gym, San Francisco CrossFit? 
50 or something. 100. Maybe. I don't know how many coaches we had over the 16 or 17 years we were there, but a lot. You know, they would come and go. But man, all we needed to do was train with them a little bit, have them in class, see them suffering, see them under some pressure, watch them interact. And we made really good hires because you can't really hide who your real self is when things get tough. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, it, to your point, why can't we use sport to come to understand how we manage stress and the practices and how stable our relationships are? You know, this is one of the reasons that we love our girls to compete. We don't really care if they're successful. I mean, famously in our family, a, a, a parent came up to uh, Julia once and was like, um, I heard a rumor. She comes up to me and she's like, I heard a rumor. By the way, we're in 12-year-old volleyball, just to you know, put some context. I heard a rumor that Kelly doesn't even care if we win or lose these games. And I was like, no, he doesn't care. This is 12-year-old volleyball. These kids are 12. He actually could care not one bit. And she was like shocked and then went back to the other parents and was like, yeah, Kelly doesn't care. He doesn't care. <laughs> I just want, I want, I think sports and by extension, let's call it training for sports because I think we've separated those things. Now we're just training for training's sake. It's training for points. It's training for gamification or validation or whatever it is. We forgot that we're training for something. You know, training was, we were, our hypothesis is better society through sport, through play, right? Yeah. That really is a way to interact, to have conversations. We have, we work with some big NFL teams and sometimes I have complicated feelings about working in the NFL. And then I see what happens in San Francisco when we make it to the playoffs. And all of a sudden everyone is on the same team and everyone has something to talk about. And it's the San Francisco's versus the Philadelphia's. And you get this tribalism that actually bonds people to each other. And I'm like, wow, I think maybe football is more important to our society and our culture than I thought. And that really is possible with sport, possible with, with getting to know ourselves. And through sport, at an individual level, some of the underlying processes, like I'm a huge fan of people signing up for something and having to do it because how's your sleep? How's your nutrition? How's your stress? How did you manage your time? All of those things have to happen for this outcome. And it's a really good way to understand your day-to-day -day life. I think sport for a long time, this is something that I don't know enough about. I've heard some things. I wish I was had more clarity on it right now, but sport for a long time has been a ritualistic practice, like, oh, yeah. a, like a death ritual. And oh, it's yeah. like, it's like we're dying, like the, the, in spiritual circles, you hear like die before you die. You know, so as long as you're like clinging, holding on, like is it you're Grossman's book on, on killing. I think he talks about a lot about that. Oh, cool. I don't know. I just, these are just things I've, I've, I've heard. I'd, now I'm like, okay, I need to do more research on this. And that's, I think we've done a lot of neutering of ancient practices that we're still kind of doing like the exhaust fumes of those. But at the root, there was actually a lot more ceremony, a lot more intention within them. And it's like, no, this is to like access your spirit. You know, this isn't just to throw a football around. This is like, so you get to know yourself in a deeper way that you, that you thought was possible. And for you to be able to like see your brothers and see your sisters in a different way and be able to, you know, in a way like, I mean, maybe die before you die is a little, little too much for this conversation. But, um, I think that a lot of, a lot of the stuff that we're doing today, it really is, it's like kicking around at deeper conversations and deeper experiences. And, uh, I think that there's there's like an availability to like lean into some of that stuff, or you don't even need to have any definitions. Right? I think if you play really hard in a sport, 
and you get to the point where like, wow, I thought I was done. And then we pushed that much further. You like, you dig like the well gets deeper. And if you don't do that, I think the, the, the human starts to, to build like anxiety in a way, you know, and it's cause it craves stress to, to live. We've, you know, we've run on stress for a long time. And if we don't have any of that ritual, rit ritualized stress or like, you know, meaningful environmental stress, um, I think we create it for ourselves. And then we start to come into being, you know, paranoid or anxious about something or maybe depressed. And the body, it's like, it's like at a deeper level, I feel like the body's like, we want to fight. <laughs> like, let us fight. <laughs> well, you know, what that makes me think about is that, you know, in my own family and, in you know, thinking about my brother in particular, he's some, someone who suffered from like lifelong real anxiety mm. and had to be medicated for that. And, and Kelly and I have talked a lot about, you know, why are we different? Why, you know, and I think he's had a lot of mental health challenges on his side of the family as, as well. And mm. it's like, you know, how, how did we avoid that? You know, how are we, you know, functioning and, and aren't just, you know, in a, like a vortex of anxiety or depression or whatever, you know, whatever challenges we're having. And I do think it's because we, and, and I think it was more luck than anything else. We just happened to luck into figuring out these ways to put these kinds of super stressors on our body. And, and when we were young, we both did sports that were like high risk, like you could die sports. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we, you know, just out of dumb luck and you know, where we were in our lives, like we both ended up being class five whitewater paddlers. And I just think that sort of drilled into us a little bit of what you're talking about, which is that created stress, that risk taking that I think made us both a little more resilient to this this sort of life anxiety situation. Well, yeah, I mean, my family just reached for bourbon and right, you know, just like suppress five suppress, generations suppress. of alcoholics in yeah. my family. You know, all yeah. the way back to County Cork, and uh, you know, and I remember, I mean, consciously a rejecting that, and b as Juliet said, having to hide, drive to move, and then finding these sports that were really, really dangerous. My friends and I would, we had. We had a lot of friends who passed in the course of a couple of years. I mean, my one of my parents just this week, last time we saw him, they were like, remember that race we did where that kid died during the race? And we were like, I was like, oh, no, I totally repressed that. <laughs> You're like, yeah. And I was like, because I had to race. You know, when the race yeah. went on, this kid went out on a backboard and my parents well, were like, oh, this is this is how my, my son is not an addict right now. He's scaring the crap out of himself with his friends on this thing. Yeah. You know, it's real. Yeah. So coming back to the book. Um, the, uh, thanks for entertaining all of this, like kind of guns out directions. Um, the, uh, from a rolfing perspective, not that anyone knows what that is or probably cares, but from a rolfing perspective, uh, Ida founder of rolfing originally, she had people start working with the feet and then she transitioned to say, no, like you got to start with the breath. If the breath is dysregulated, you're not able to actually get full access to that. Then your autonomic nervous system's going to be not working properly or to its potential. And so we'll start off working with the breath. And then from there, we'll work on the foundation of the feet. Um, I'd be curious your y'all's perception of the value of breath. What is modern culture largely missing in their breathing and their respiratory function? And what are simple practices that, um, or, you know, lifestyle choices or, or whatever comes up for you that would be supportive for people to get back into tapping to their, their, their breath? You know, we started, I think I found the original notes from the first course I taught back in 2008, and I have a section on breathing mm -hmm. and done regulation there. And I realized, of course, that should have been expanded on, you know, and, and, um, 
I started to really become more interested in this piece, I think, because we saw its impact on pain downregulation and then commensurately with a increase in VO2 max and performance. When we started, we could get better intra-abdominal pressure, we were able to move more volume in, solved a lot of movement problems. It also really gave us quick access to helping people get out of pain quickly. Hmm. If you, you know, if you take our low back pain course or come and take any of our advanced courses, when we talk about pain around, especially low back, breathing is the first intervention hmm. because it can be done anywhere, anytime, by anyone, safely. And it's really an important way to jack into the brain, right? Iyengar, nerves are king of the breath, breath is king of the brain. Yep. So what I'll say is that we think you should be conscious of it. We, you can do Brian McKenzie, Shift Adapt, you can do Laird Hamilton, XPT, you can do Butraco, you can do Oxygen Advanced. We don't really care. Jill Miller has a new book out called Body by Breath, also really great. It doesn't matter who your guru or entrance is. But you're leaving a lot of feeling, control, regulation, performance on the table if you're not looking at your ability to breathe and your ability to breathe well and to manipulate your breathing when you're stressed or under stress. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I think one of the reasons we have it as the second chapter in our book is, you know, going back to what Kelly was saying about sort of the, some of the failings of the fitness business. I mean, I think when we're talking about breathing and breath, um, it when you're in our world, it seems hot and like what everybody's talking about. Um, but none of the other 99% of people are talking about it or thinking about it unless they happen to have a yoga practice. I mean, that seems to be the exception of sort of people I know that are outside our industry. Um, those people actually do have a, a, a breathing practice as part of their yoga practice. But generally speaking, without that, I think, you know, our goal with this book was to bring awareness to exactly what Kelly said, which is the massive power breath has to help people, you know, get out of pain. Um, and also just generally bring awareness to stress breathing, how that impacts your body and your physiology generally, and also give people simple strategies to be like, okay, again, you don't have to do a one hour breathing class or a one hour breathing meditation. Um, there's a lot of ways to bring awareness to your breath that can again be integrated into your life. You know, we, we have a, we don't sit down and do a one hour breath practice every day. We don't have time for that and it's not part of our lives, but you know, we, we use a lot of breath work as, as part of our warm up when we are ready to work out. You know, we focus on nose only breathing while we're walking because we are focused on walking all the time. So we try to integrate nose only breathing into our walking. So, you know, with our book, we're just trying to sort of bring more people under this net of those of us who know and appreciate the power of breath. And I think Jacob Nestor's book did a lot of service in this department as well. I think a lot of people learned about the importance of it there, but I, I think, you know, for the vast majority of people, it's literally not a consideration in terms of their overall health. Uh, what are some of the most common blank spaces that you see with people's breathing patterns? Is there, is there some places like if you would just maybe work on, I don't know, bringing the breath down a little lower, maybe breathe horizontally, maybe do breathe, your nose breathing, maybe like what, what do you see are the, the gaps, most common gaps in modern cultures, breathing patterns? I mean, I'll, I'll speak to this as someone who's watched Kelly um, speak in front of, you know, crowds of 5,000 people and asked them, you know, live and in person to take a breath. 
um, and watched 5,000 people breathe in their chest and neck. Sure. Um, and, and so, you know, to me, that's what I would see. I think people don't have access to sort of a, a, a lower level breathing strategy and yep. don't know how to employ that. And also don't know that that chest neck breathing could also be, you know, exacerbating any stress anxiety they're experiencing as a human. Yeah. Valuable if you need to fight, but right. not valuable if you're just having some tea, you know, or right. you're at a conference. Right. Or you're just at your computer, you know, <laughs> if you're, if you're just if at you're your laptop this, all day. Get on an assault bike <laughs> and shut your mouth and then do a 20 minute FTP. So max wattage, your average wattage for 20 minutes is your score on an assault bike. And you can only breathe through your nose. And I will show you the value of your neck <laughs> and the value of your ribs because in order to put out, you're going to need all of the systems and you're going to be so sore in your back in crazy, crazy places because mm. you haven't developed those capacities. Mm. One of the things that we see is poor ventilation mechanics. And again, moving away from the brain, what's going on, accessing feelings. That's really important. But let's just talk about mechanics for a second. Yep. We see that we've been able to improve VO2 max on our elite athletes. We've been able to get them into pushing 90% of their max heart rate through their nose, through nose-only breathing. That means that there's a lot of efficiency in that cardiorespiratory system that has been untapped. The first time I ever talked about it or listened to it, it was Lance Armstrong's coach, the brilliant uh, physiology manipulator, A.G. Ferrari, the guy who kind of ran his drug program. <laughs> but one of the things he did with Lance Armstrong was got him off his legs and onto his lungs. So he, Lance spun at a higher cadence than everyone else did. And A.G. Ferrari said, well, the legs are an infinite or they're a finite feature, hmm. but the lungs are an infinite system. So we can continue to shift this physiology and demand into this cardiorespiratory motor and we can continue to develop that almost, inf you know, ad infinitum versus the legs and sort of muscular power was going to be a, a system we tapped. That was the first time I really heard this and was like, what's this about? Yeah. And, you know, even from people, you know, when we start to explain to people, you know, the work, the idea of Philip Beach, you know, who yeah. is the, Muscles and Meridians. You know, his wonderful book, Muscles and Meridians. He talks about the trunk as a radial contractile field, as looking at the structures of the trunk as being able to expand 360. And there'll be different places that have different tensionalities based on the demand of the body. You're holding something heavy, your arms over your head, things are going to move and tension up. But the whole system should be able to expand. Some areas in your ribs are going to not as expand as well as your, you know, your abdomen and low back. But what we see is that breathing as a skill was really underappreciated. As Juliet said, a lot of people just don't have a strategy. They just default back. And some of that is learned behavior from the way we sit and interact with the world. But the average person, for example, one of the things that we focus on is we spend a lot of time talking about, can you feel this one rep max position? And that gives people a lot of ways to find more functional and better behaviors and better postures and better organization. And we can use that idea of, can you breathe in this position? Hmm. Something else, since we're compressed on time, there's a lot of other specifics that I'd love. Maybe we'll, if you guys are open to it, we can do another one at some point. Um, 100%. But, but something that I have been uh, very enamored by and, you know, working to, to champion for a while is, is bringing sexy back to spending time on the ground. Um, I think that that's that I, from my, my 
perspective, I think that that is absolutely a foundation for the healthcare of culture in yes. general, and it has been forever. And it's one of the greatest deficits in modern culture that nobody sees. Not nobody, but not enough people are seeing. So I love that that's the first chapter in the book is get the hell back on the ground. Um, and look at Marsh Feldenkrais. Marsh, you know, was like, you know, how many of his lessons started by moving on the ground? Yeah. Bringing awareness through a ground-based practice. Yeah. Yeah. So why, why does that... I mean, I, I mean, I've, I have a lot of ideas on this, but from your guys' experience and, and, and perspective, why does that matter? Um, where did we, does it matter? Does our ancestry and cultures in Northern Africa and Eastern Mediterranean and Southeast Asia and instance of osteoarthritis in the hips and pelvic floor dysfunction and fall risk just being wiped off the table and all this stuff, like why does be, spending time on the ground, am I too... Uh, excited about spending time on the ground? Am I not excited enough? You know, like what's, what do you well, think about this? I'll tell you, I don't think you're too excited. I think it's, I, we also agree it's critical. In fact, we were just shopping for a chair for our living room and we actually found this like mid-century modern couch thing that basically was just on the floor. It was mm -hmm. like a bunch of cushions that you push together as a couch. Yeah. And we were like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like maybe we should get that thing. So, I mean, we're right. obsessed with it. One quick side story to tell you, which I think is apropos of this topic, Kelly just was on a ski trip with a bunch of friends in Japan and he got to a hotel and was supposed to be sharing a room with another guy who had a cold. So he needed to get his own room. And the hotel staff in Japan freaked out because they were full. Um, and upon further review, uh, Kelly and the team learned that they were full of like American people rooms, which was the rooms that had a bed elevated off the floor and a table and, you know, everything you would see in a sort of standard American room. But they had plenty of Japanese rooms where all of the stuff was on the floor. And so Kelly was like, I am born for this. Like, I am the guy <laughs> who needs the Japanese room. And he took a video of the room and it was amazing. I mean, there was a futon on the floor. There was yeah. a little table set up on the floor. You know, you would shower sitting on the ground. I mean, this whole entire room was completely set up to be moving around, crawling around, getting up and down off the floor. Um, and, and so that just so highlighted for us, like within the last few weeks, how far away culturally we've gotten from that in, in our sort of high bed, high chair world. Yeah. Wh so. Why did, why does it matter? You know, like if we, if we're not living in an environment with adequate constraints to take our body through a full, you know, functional quotations range of motion, um, like what happens why does that matter? How could just simply reorienting your environment slightly so that becomes more inviting make a difference? We can, we can approach this, I think, a couple different ways. One way is something that Juliet likes to point out that most businesses, most even retirement people look and say, here's my goal for the next five years, right? Here's my retirement goal. Here's our business goal. Let's work backwards from there mm -hmm. to start saving or retiring or what things we're going to do in our business to grow capital or grow revenue for, you know, whatever the third quarter, fourth quarter. We also see that in high performance environments and sports Super Bowl is on this day. So what are we going to get done between this and this day? Or your meat is on this day. How are we going to work backwards between these 16 weeks to prepare you for this moment? If we know that one of the chief reasons that people end up in nursing homes is their inability to get up off the floor, yep. it seems like if we just applied that same logic and said, well, 
one way to do that is to start spending time on the floor, getting up off the floor when we can still do that. When it's not, I don't need to hire a professional person to teach me to get up and down off the floor. Yeah. So we could apply that simple logic. The second, I think, test might be even be just that we traditionally sat on the ground, toilet on the ground, slept on the ground, interact on the ground, cooked on the ground. Everything was ground-based. Yeah. And it, you might say that one of the body's evolutionary stresses was, and part of the normal behavior of human beings was flexing the knees all the way, flexing the hips all the way, and having a variety of positions. Katie Bowman has this wonderful a poster of traditional ground-based sitting postures. And there's like a hundred there where you can just choose the way you want. We chose, I think, four or five, right? Mm -hmm. But Philip Beach, who we referenced before, even has a hypothesis that it's one of the ways that the body tunes itself. Yeah, called the tuning mechanism. We re the hips get reset because you're on hands and knees, right? You're, you're long sitting, and so you're loading joints, you're loading connective tissue in some of these fundamental patterns that actually gives shape and support to the rest of the system. So again, I think you can come from either way. The other thing that we're super excited about is we see that when people sit on the floor while they're watching Netflix, that's what we're asking people to do. It's that easy. Yeah. Like you don't have to give up your Netflix. Yeah, Just like, sit on the floor. You're already doing that. <laughs> Show us what happens to your squatting and your performance. Again, when we wrote bio, Becoming a Supple Leopard, there are two objective measures in Becoming a Supple Leopard that are hidden in there that I think are really confusing for people. One is range of motion. Just native range of motion that every physical therapist, chiro, doctor, anyone who ever studies the body knows that the shoulder does this and the hip does this. Like that's how we assess. There's within a standard deviation, there's everyone is pretty same. Maybe a few degrees here or there because you're Scottish and I'm not, right? But otherwise it's still the same amount of hip flexion. The second thing that we're obsessed with is objectivity as in biomotor output objectivity. You get into a better position with better access to your range of motion. You have better methods of solving movement solutions and you can go faster and harder and lift bigger weights when you're in better positions. Mm -hmm. So those are two of our objective measures and they're sort of inviolate. You can't, you can't say, well, I don't believe you. And I'm like, well, that's, this is not my game of rules. This is your game of rules based on the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons yeah. and what they think the ankle should do. So now suddenly sitting on the ground, we challenge you to say not did your back feel better, but oh, what's important to you? Well, your range of motion improves. That's weird because that's one of the things we value. And you're able to generate more force and walk faster or run faster, lift more weights because you sat on the ground. It seems like a no brainer. I want to take a moment and share something that has been invaluable for reducing my overall stress levels as well as improving my quality of sleep that is supplementing with magnesium particularly magnesium from mag breakthrough by by optimizers magnesium is responsible for over 300 body reactions and magnesium breakthrough is the only magnesium formula that delivers all seven different forms of magnesium each with its unique benefits one of them being feeling more calm centered and in control of our stress levels so i've been taking mag breakthrough in the morning time recently to counterbalance some of the potential stressful effects of the absurd amounts of coffee that i can consume on occasion 
as well as just the cortisol and things of the sort that are upregulated in the morning time. So it is a great way to feel just more balanced and calm and is also supportive for healing your muscles because it helps with the tonicity of those muscles. So if you're also trying to balance life's demands, give it a try. Trust me, your mind and body will thank you for it. You can visit magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast in order now. If you lose, use code align10, you will get 10% off of your purchase. They have 100% money back guarantee. If you do not sleep better, if you do not reduce your stress, if you do not feel like it is supporting your muscular repair process, then you can get your money back. No questions asked. I have a very strong feeling you will get a great value from Mag Breakthrough. So visit magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash align podcast. Use line 10 for 10% discount. I want to take a moment and share one of my favorite sponsors to date. That is Vivo Barefoot. These are my favorite shoes. When people ask me what kind of shoes do I recommend for barefoot running, barefoot training, barefoot casual wear, Vivo Barefoot, they are at the top of the market. Most other barefoot shoes are coming off of the trend of Vivo. I did it first. They did it best. They're still doing it best in my opinion. And I think you guys would really love these shoes. Also, if you want to try them, they have a hundred day money back guarantee so if you get this shoe you don't absolutely love it you don't think it looks cool you don't get good compliments on it doesn't improve your training and you get a full refund for the first 100 days so you have absolutely nothing to lose and you can get 15 percent off by going to vivobarefoot.com slash align that's spelled v-i-v-o-b-a-r-e-f-o-o-t.com slash align for 15 percent off 100 day free trial you guys are gonna love these things they're my favorite shoe i hope you enjoy vivobarefoot.com slash align yeah and, and that's another i think that if when things get when solutions become too fancy you know and too complex i feel like it's just convoluted typically there's like yeah. an einstein quote about that um, another thing that I've, I'm noticing the immense value of, uh, as I guess, as I get a little older, uh, is just walking. Like as I'm, as I'm walking, I'm like, bro, this like, speaking of like Phillip beach tuning mechanisms, like this is tuning AF. Yeah. Like what is walking? How about, how about this? Walk fast, walk quickly. And it's one of the best ways to turn on neuroplasticity. Mm. your brain starts to say, why are we walking fast? Something's going on. I should pay attention. Why is this human being walking fast in this environment? Is there something, is we being, are we hunting? What's going on? Yeah. And your brain starts to open up new pathways and remodel itself only because you're walking faster. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we are obsessed and have been for, I don't know, 15 years with walking and adding in more walking. Um, and, and I think, what is, I, I think, so profound about it is that it's like all the things, you know, you, we all, no matter what, get stuck sitting in chairs and we're stuck on airplanes. And, you know, one of the things that we see that like the general public complains about is they don't know about range of motion. A lot of people don't understand the word mobility um, or it's misunderstood. But a lot of people, especially as they start to get older, complain about feeling stiff. They don't know what that means. It's just this general term of stiffness. And, you know, you know, our remedy for that is, man, make sure you are walking enough in the day, right? Because you're taking your hip out of a 90 degree angle and, you know, you're decongesting, decongesting your tissues, um, not to mention the community benefit of it. I mean, if you can actually go walk with people and connect with those around you, um, or, you know, just take a moment alone to be able to process and think about your own thoughts or 
you know, maybe even multitask and listen to a book or a podcast or catch up on, you know, or be, be do a you, citizen of the world. I've out, I move in trills or yeah. drop in a breath hold. Yeah, do some breath hold work, Holy nose moly. breathing. I mean, there's just so many, there's so many ways that you can, you know, like add on to walking to make it even in, more in, awesome than it just is. Instead of doing an eye movement drill where you're looking at, you know, some letters inside your, right. your house, go for a damn walk outside and look at some birds. Like look up, well, focus myopically, nailed. focus panoramically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like right. what the hell are we doing? Yeah, and get some sunlight. Can, you know, I mean, everybody's like, stink eyes you, know, you walk past. Yeah, Hu- like Huberman is like, like Huberman's <laughs> come like, on. Everyone's Huberman's got everyone on. Like get your early morning sun- sunlight. And I'm like, okay, that's great, but go for a walk. Go walk and yeah. get some early. You know, get that extra benefit of of early morning sunlight. And, and I think the other thing I would add to sorry to interrupt, Kels, but you know, we see. I, I think if we to, to the extent this is all very connected, you know, one of the major issues we see is people struggling with sleep to get enough sleep, to get quality sleep, to, you know, wake up feeling refreshed. And one of the things we theorize is that people, most people are not getting enough total movement in their day to actually be physically tired enough to go to sleep quickly and get really deep and restful sleep and hit all the sleep stages. And so, you know, if we work with like an elite military team and and now it's, it's actually like military policy for these elite military guys that, you know, if they're struggling with sleep, they're prescribed more walking. That's like a thing. It's not just like a fake thing. They're prescribed more walking, more total movement. And and this is for a population you'd think is getting all the movement, you know, every day, but it turns out they're often not, and they're not getting enough movement to actually sleep. So, you know, there's just the, the sort of webs that the webs of awesomeness that walking a lot in your life can create and, and not to mention all the data. I mean, there's tons of data showing that, you know, with each thousand steps, you walk a day you know, you increase your lifespan and all these sort of far off things, mm. you know, the data is there as well. So we're such evangelists of walking. In fact, we had this, um, Kelly was just featured in this article about this guy who had been a lifelong run runner and then was struggling with injury and, and, you know, running was his identity and he wasn't sure how to sort of go forward in life as a non-runner. And Kelly was like, you need to take up walking. Mm-hmm. And I think the journalist slash, you know, runner guy was kind of surprised because he's like, here I have Kelly Starrett, like Mr. Supple Leopard himself, who's worked with like every major athlete and team on the world. And this guy's prescribing me to do more walking. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's not sexy, but you know, we found, you know, both of the people we work with and just in our own lives that it is transformative. Yeah. If you want to know your neighborhood, go walk. Yeah, know your neighbors. Say hi. Yeah. Like literally walking through like better civil society through walking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a there's an old, I don't know, adage that if old people understand things that don't change and young people understand things that do, I think a lot of these sub-sexy suggestions, that's like the old stuff that's not going anywhere. You know, get some sunlight. Sub-sexy. that. Yeah. And it's like the foundation of sexy. I don't know. You're elite. Yeah. And you're an elite person. And you need elite I'm practices. 100% stealing that. So you get a ruck, you know? I, yeah. I always like to, I look for things that end up being, you know, good for the goose and good for the gander. Also that scale up. One of the key tenets of my coaching experience, I learned from Mike Bergner, Coach, Ber- Coach B, because I saw Coach B coach high school kids Olympic lifting, freshmen like kids. And then I watched him go home that evening and coach Olympians in Olympic lifting same day. And I could see the thinking 
in what was going on. I could see the through narrative in how he developed these processes and, you know, what was essential? Why did he teach this? Cause it scaled up. And this walking piece is pretty profound because as Juliet said, for all the reasons it can be regressed and progressed infinitely. One of the best tests in physical therapy is called the, the tug timed up and go which means you stand up from a chair, you walk 10 meters, you turn around another chair and you come back and sit and you can measure that. And that is a power output. It's two squats plus 20 meters of walking, right? And you can see that there's a correlation between your likelihood of falling and the time that you put on that test. Mm. Well, that's the same test as this famous Litvinov hammer thrower used to do this workout. He's like one of the best hammer throwers in the world and he would run 400 meters and then he would front squat 200 kilos for seven reps. And he would do that for repeated times. The timed up and go, the Litvinov, front the squat same run, workout. same workout, scaled. And so there's something essential about that. And suddenly, if you're like, hey, I need you to go run this hill, we can do that. But I can also say, hey, I need you to walk this hill. Oh, I need you to walk in this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Oh, I need you to walk, because you're in back pain, around your kitchen counter Every 30 minutes, I need you to take a loop around your kitchen counter today. Yeah. And we see that this is an essential that can be scaled backwards infinitely. Yeah. And one quick thing too, I like to call my parents like the original built to movers because they're both, my dad mm. just turned 80 this year and he actually spent his 80th, 80th birthday rafting a class four river in Costa Rica, mm. which most people aren't doing at 80. And my mom, who is 77, is you know, fit and acute. came in from her dance class yesterday. Yeah. And, but you know, they, I would say the sort of thread with their collective good health at their old age is they both have always walked a ton, mm. you know, and they also predated fitness culture, right? People weren't really going, you know, they didn't grow up at a time when people were like going to gyms, members of gyms. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't fitness culture. In, in their, you know, early younger lives when they were raising kids and yeah. in their you know, 30s, 40s, 50s at all. But what they always did was move a lot and their primary move Whatever, was you're walking. Smoking and aerobics? Come on. Smoking and aerobics. Drink nor, is, nor is any any of the centarian cultures really conscious of what they're doing from it. Well, they, well now they're proud of it, I think, probably because like Butner and, and yeah, the rest of the world's like, oh, you guys are awesome, by yeah. the way. You're like, oh, shit, I guess we are. This is what you we know, do. But, we had a right. bunch of 90-year-olds right, in like, our life, and they weren't all very fit. Yeah, but just you're right. Active. In those blue zones, those people weren't all like, okay, in the blue zone, they're not like, I'm about to start Correct. my workout, yeah. right? They just, my again, get my everything grams. that they were doing from a health standpoint was integrated into their life and like a normal thing that required no thinking or planning. Yeah. Is it okay if I ask one more, one more thing? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So we talked about all the psychosomatic business relationships and such, then got into breathing, then got into a passive way to, um, decongest the, the joints in the lower body, take yourself through a full range of motion, um, shoulder function. That's another thing you write about in the book. Um, I think that there's, a, there's a, there's another pretty uh, easy, simple, almost like boring solution, or there are a lot of solutions to recovering proper shoulder function. What is shoulder function? Like, why does it matter? What should people be able to do with their shoulders? What can't they do? What can they do to get it back? Um, I'll let Kelly talk about the mechanics of this, but I have a quick story to, to tell. I mean, I think you're exactly right. Shoulder mechanics and shoulder range of motion is like a hard sell. Um, 
you know, I think it's like one of the least talked about in sort of mainstream media and for people that are like outside of CrossFit gyms and serious training, like they're like, what, what, you know, why should I care about my shoulder range of motion? Like really, why should I care? But we actually were on a podcast just this past week and the host of the podcast was talking about his mom struggling to put the, who's in her like late sixties, struggling to put the dishes in the upper cabinet of her kitchen. Sure. Um, because she was lacking in shoulder range of motion. And I think the other big example we give is, you know, people actually struggle to get their suitcase in the overhead bin on an airplane. Um, but it, it is sort of, I, I feel like it's one of the hardest cells. Like, why should you care about your shoulder range of motion? Yeah. Kels, let's hear it. You know, one of the amazing things about the shoulder and the wrists and the hands, there's actually an old saying, you know, the hands are clever. I think it's an old like Soviet saying. And the idea is that, your hands are always able to sort of make up for how the stiffness in the elbows, the lack of range of motion, the shoulders. Um, if you watch Prue and Paul on the Great British Breaking Show, you can see Prue really struggles to get the fork to her face. She actually has to bend her head down to get the fork up because she's got some kind of restriction in there. And you can see how it fundamentally changes. But even though she struggles to bring her arm up to her head for some reason, she can still feed herself. And everything around the body structure is designed, no matter what, you can pretty much get your hands to your face because it's such a foundational survival thing. Mm -hmm. So if we're just talking about survival, it's not really a good case to talk about all the wonderful things your shoulder can do. But if we're talking about being able to take a full breath in your upper back, we have to look at your shoulders. Yeah. If we're going to talk about solving neck pain, we have to see the shoulder as a really important relationship between the head, the thorax, the upper body, and the shoulder. It's a kind of a trifecta. And then again, when we start to we look window back and say, well, we know that your ability to do a push-up correlates really well with your ability to not end up dying or end up in an old folks home, right? Getting up off the ground turns out to be really an important skill that often requires your arms, believe it or not. And if you don't believe me, just watch the internet with all these coaches putting PVC pipe behind their back, trying to get up off the ground without their arms, right? It's really difficult to do. So one of the things we haven't done a good job of in our society is creating vital signs around behavior of physical behavior and movement behavior. If I say to my kids, is 120 over 80 good blood pressure? They're like, no, it's just the blood pressure where you start paying attention that your blood pressure isn't good. It's not good or bad. It's just blah. It's not an athlete, but it's not, you know, 300 over 200, right? So they, everyone understands that. If you ask any parent, does your kid have a fever or not? They know exactly where that fever begins and where to care about that. So one of the things that we've tried to do for people is say, hey, look, we're not talking about having elite gymnast or full normative range, but you should have some tests that allow you to understand that your inability to move your arms freely is going to cost you function. And it is not that uncommon for people to come in with real shoulder pain or frozen shoulder or neck problems or elbow problems and not see the correlation between their inability to move their shoulder in a native range, not gymnastics range, not super native, just basic ranges. And a lot of the movements that we do, for example, chaturanga in yoga is a great example of 
reasonable shoulder extension, not crazy tabletop skin, the cat, but hands by your chest is a reasonable amount of shoulder extension in the, in the body. And you go from that shoulder extension position in Chaturanga to plank, which is another fundamental shape with your arm straight in front of you. And then as you press into downward dog, your arm goes over your head and it's almost like that little chaturanga to downward dog flow that you've done a thousand times in every yoga class. Someone in yoga was like, this is really important. Yeah. We should maintain this because as a human, you're going to scoot on the floor, push up from a chair. And in order to have a back that allows you to take a full breath, and a jaw that works effectively and a head that turns, you're going to need your shoulders to be at full power. Yeah, there's um, there's another book that I'm sure you guys are familiar with from an orthopedic surgeon called Dr. John Kirsch. It's called Shoulder Pain, little question mark. And his suggestion there, which I've never met or talked to him, so I don't you know know how accurate this is, but he suggested that 98% of the patients that he would see for surgery for some type of shoulder impingement syndrome, he could completely recover and heal and become pain free just through going through a simple hanging protocol and then a few corrective exercises. Because the shoulder, its native patterning or native function is to be able to go up over the head and hang. Like we hang better than monkeys. Monkey bar is a misnomer. You know, there should be eight, <laughs> eight bar human bar. And the structure of our clavicle and our shape of our hands. Like there's something there. Depending, who, you know, whatever your belief systems are, it doesn't really matter. Like there's something there that the human shoulder girdle is structured to do that well. And if we divorce ourselves of that, you know. Something's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, I mean, I think I have some ideas. I think you guys have a lot of ideas, you know, but yeah, it's, you're going to end up as a well, shrimp. And yeah. we couldn't agree more. I mean, we're such fans of hanging and talk about constraining slash peppering our environment. I mean, since our kids have been yeah. little and even to this day, there's like 20 different places around the star at household where you can hang from something Yeah, um, because we think it's so important and we want it to be like, you know, you pass under the pull-up bar and hang for one so second simple. before you go into the house. Just so yeah. simple. We're Cheap. such yeah. fans of it. We actually just were interviewed for this um, publication called Bay Area Parent, and they wanted to. It was like the ten physical practices you should have your kids do this summer. And one of them was we suggested that people go buy like a cheap, you know, door hanging pull up bar so that kids can practice hanging around the house. And I yeah. think the journalist was really surprised. I think that was not the kind of suggestion she was thinking of. You know, yeah. she was thinking like get outside, get sunlight, sort of the typical stuff. But yeah, I mean, we couldn't be more fans of hanging and making sure kids keep that skill alive. And for you know, one. The Huge core stuff. of MoveNet uh, started doing these informal polls at his courses, and he'd say, "Who can do a pull up?" And the, every hand that went up, he's like, "And how many of you had a tree in your backyard?" And the same number of hands went up, mm. and that kids who climbed and were exposed always had more function in that position. And what's yep. amazing is if you took built to move any of the processes, any of the behaviors, and just said, "Okay." Now apply them to your growing children. I think people would fall on their faces in horror that their kids don't eat micronutrients, that their kids don't sit on the ground, that they don't have they access to range of motion, they can't take a breath, they can't hang. And you, you, you know, literally we're thinking this is for adults. You could take the same book and say, okay, all of these things are essential for growing bodies. And if you have a child who can't put their arms up over their head, which is real, you may have a child who's not going to be very good on swim team. You know, or throw very well. And so what you really end up saying is, how can we shape the environment in such a way that we don't have to 
force a vitamin down, that we don't have to do some program, that there's play and engagement and richness in around us so that we don't have to do another thing. It is built in for us. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. I really, um, I've learned a lot from both of you guys over the years. And um, it's such a, uh, an honor and pleasure to get to continue to have these conversations. Um, and let me just say, it's always great to talk about my feelings with you and Juliet here. I so love great. that. That that opener, like I'm going to be ear, like smiling ear to ear for the rest of the day about that opener. Talk about my feelings? I was I'm like, so yes, down. Yes. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Tell me more, yeah, Juliet. Yeah, exactly. Um, so people, uh, what's the what's the CTA? Go grab go grab Built to Move. Go hang yeah, off go of something. Go check out down the ground. builttomove.com. You can go to builttomove.com or you know just go over to Amazon and get a copy. Out April 4th. And if you're listening to this after April 4th, you can uh, go back and watch us on YouTube on Good Morning America. Bam. Talking about Built to Move. Word up. Uh, well, thank you guys. I appreciate you. And uh, that's it. That's all. Hope you guys devoured that conversation. If you'd like to share it, you can tag myself at Lime Podcast. You can tag uh, both of them at The Ready State and also at Juliet Starrett. And that is it. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for leaving us reviews on Apple Podcasts. I read them all. I appreciate them and appreciate you. I'll see you next week.